For more than a decade now, we've watched the way in which the world has been impacted by the growing trend of internet challenges. Uh, For example, it was back in 2010, that's when we were first introduced to the planking challenge. And it wasn't long before people were posting ridiculous pictures of themselves planking in the most unusual public spaces. And it was just a weird time to be alive. By 2013, or actually the planking challenge quickly gave way to the Gangnam Style Challenge because, yeah, that was a thing. And then we were encouraged to engage in the Harlem Shake Challenge. And, you know, anybody that came along and invited me to accept this challenge, I let them know that I was uh, more into chocolate shakes than Harlem Shakes. But by 2013, people were posting videos of themselves senselessly engaging in the gallon smashing challenge because nothing says I'm for the climate like smashing a gallon of milk on HEB's floor. And then by 2014, there was the ice bucket challenge as people came up with unusual ways to pour ice cold water on their heads you know, all in the name of ALS research, which you know, most people never really funded with their own money. Uh, Since then, there's been the running list of internet challenges, which include the Charlie Charlie Challenge of 2015, because, you know, what kid doesn't want to be demon-possessed by a a, a ghost named Charlie? Then there was the Mannequin Challenge of 2016. There was the Diet Coke and Mentos Challenge of 2017. And then there was the Tide Pod Challenge of 2018, which actually convinced kids to literally consume Tide Pods. God help us. There was the Bird Box Challenge of 2019 that encouraged youth to film themselves doing things while blindfolded. And in 2020, there was a social media influencer who started the coronavirus challenge as she posted a video of herself licking a public toilet on an airplane. Yes, that happened. In 2021, kids were encouraged to post videos of themselves engaging in the blackout challenge as they hyperventilated themselves. And and then most recently in 2022, the tortilla challenge became all the rage because, listen, who doesn't want to slap another person with a tortilla? As we consider this increasing phenomena of people engaging in these ridiculous internet challenges. Well, I think it's time for Christians to start a whole new challenge here in 2023. And I'd like to call this challenge the church challenge. Just to be clear, you know, the church challenge ought to be our way of encouraging every other believer to become active participants in their church, not just attendees, but active participants in their church. And in order to help others to, to step up to this challenge, we ought to help them to understand that those who step up to the church challenge will become victorious Christians in Christ Jesus. Those who step up to the church challenge will also become gracious Christians. Thirdly and finally, uh, we'll learn that those who step up to the church challenge will become harmonious Christians. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's presenting the Christians in Thessalonica with his classic greeting. And as you make your way to the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I want to take a a moment here to set the stage for this epistle. I want to remind you that it was back in Paul's first epistle 
where Paul then helped the church there in Thessalonica to comprehend Christ's second coming. They had questions and concerns about the second coming of Christ. And so Paul set out to clear up those, those concerns. And while I have no doubt that they were blessed by the clarity that Paul introduced in that first epistle, well, it seems to me that they still had some follow-up questions, which Paul appears to be addressing here in this second epistle. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, I want to consider the greeting that Paul presented here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And with that, if you would, let's begin reading here at verse 1. Here, Paul begins this epistle by writing, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in the beginning of this second epistle, we find Paul, he's prefacing this letter with the same greeting that he presented to all of the other churches that he sent letters to. As a matter of fact, we find the same greeting of grace and peace in the letters that he sent to the churches in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae, not to mention uh, the two letters that he sent to the church in Thessalonica. In each of these epistles, we find Paul presenting the church with the same exact words of encouragement by declaring this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we consider this greeting that Paul presented to the Christian congregations that he was writing to, well, it seems to me that he wanted to make sure that every Christian knew that these letters were from uh, from him and to them, no matter their bloodline or their lineage. And the reason I say this is because, listen, grace, this was the typical greeting that was used by most Gentiles. And peace, this was the typical greeting that was offered by most Jews. And so when Paul prefaces these epistles with the greetings of grace and peace, well, he was helping both the Jew and the Gentile Christian to understand that this letter was for them. And I would make the, the same argument here today. Regardless of your lineage, regardless of your bloodline, this letter is for you. This letter is for us. And in order to further make my case, I want to take another look here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's there in verse 1 where Paul addresses this epistle to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in this verse, we find Paul addressing this epistle to the Christian congregation. He addresses this to the church. And in this context, it's the church of the Thessalonians. Now, uh, just to be clear here, the word church, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to an assembly of people who gather in a public space and for a specific purpose. In a biblical context, the church is an assembly of believers who gather together in order to worship the Lord Jesus according to the instructions that we find throughout the New Testament epistles. And with this definition in mind, well, we can see that the word church was most commonly used in reference to the local congregation of Christians. At the same time, this word is also used in reference to the universal church, which is what I would call the earthly aspect of God's kingdom. Now, just to be clear, the universal church is a reference to every earthbound believer who belongs to the kingdom of God. And in order to clear up the confusion surrounding the difference between the universal church 
and the kingdom of God, it'll help us to know that the kingdom of God, well, this includes everything that our king rules over, whether it be in heaven or on earth. You know, when you have a monarchy with a king, whatever that king rules over, that's a part of his kingdom. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about anything that the king, our God, rules over. Therefore, the kingdom of God, well, this includes what's also called the kingdom of heaven. Just to be clear about this, listen, the the kingdom of God includes the heavenly realm that he is the king of. And so the kingdom of God includes the kingdom of heaven where God rules over his heavenly realm. And yet at the same time, the kingdom of God is also found in the hearts of every born again believer here on the planet today. Proof of my point? Well, it's found in Luke chapter 17 where a group of Pharisees come along and ask Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. And it's in Luke 17 verses 20 and 21 where Jesus answers and says this. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Isn't that incredible? The kingdom of God is within you. In other words, the kingdom of God is within the hearts of those who trust in the king of kings. And while it's true that the kingdom of God can be found in the hearts of every born-again believer on the planet today... Well, it's also true that the king we serve, he's calling every Christian to become his ambassadors. We've been called to become ambassadors of his kingdom, the kingdom which is still yet to come. And with this as the goal, listen, every believer has been called to connect with other Christians within the local church. And in this way, every local church then serves as a kingdom embassy as we wait for the millennial kingdom of Christ to finally arrive. Think about that for a moment. This church is a kingdom embassy, and we are the ambassadors who are here to represent the kingdom of God. To further make my case, let's consider another, uh, another aspect of this greeting that Paul presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would look with me there in the middle of verse 1, here again he declares to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we find Paul addressing this letter to the local church where? Well, the local church in the city of Thessalonica. This is just one church of many there in the land of Macedonia. And and what this means then is that this letter is specifically written to a group of Christians who were gathering together at one local church. And while this letter was, you know, most certainly written for the benefit of every believer throughout the entire church age, including us here today in South Austin, Listen, we can be certain that Paul was a Christian leader who was not only interested in the universal church, which is one aspect of the kingdom of God, but Paul was also interested in establishing the local church, where local Christians are gathering together at the kingdom embassy, where we are worshiping our Savior together. Paul was invested in establishing the local church, which is why he went you know, from city to city, planting churches all, all along the way, and then writing letters back to them to encourage them to continue worshiping the Lord within the local church. And that, with that being the case, you know, it would be incorrect to think this. It would be incorrect to think that you can be a kingdom Christian while, fa- while failing to plug into a local church. You know, there are Christians who think that way. They think, well, I'm going to be a kingdom Christian, and you just be a local church Christian. I'm a kingdom Christian. I'm you know, part of the kingdom, but you're a local church Christian. And listen, it isn't like that. You can't be a kingdom Christian if you're not plugged into a local church. 
Because the kingdom is all about the local church. How do I know this? Because this letter is written to where? The kingdom? No. This letter is written to the local church in Thessalonica, just like the letter to the Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. The letter to, to the Philippians is written to the church in Philippi. You can't be a kingdom Christian unless you're plugged into a local church. Further proof of my point can be found in Matthew 16, where the Lord Jesus assures his disciples that he was preparing to expand his kingdom. How? By building his kingdom? No. By building his church. He says he's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Later on in Revelation, it's actually in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find the Lord Jesus directly addressing seven local churches which were located throughout the land of Asia. And each time he concludes his encouragement to the seven local churches there in Asia by declaring this, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have an ear, if you have a spiritual ear, then you need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. The Lord Jesus was helping us to understand that the Holy Spirit was sent to provide guidance to Christians through what? The churches, the leadership of the local church. Therefore, I say that the believer who is failing to become an active participant in their local church, is simultaneously failing to walk in the victory that the Lord Jesus promised for his church when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To further prove my point, I want to consider the greeting that Paul pens here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would, uh, let's look again there where he addresses this to the church of the Thessalonians. And it'll help you to know that the word Thessalonians, found there in verse 1, it's actually a reference to those living in the city of Thessalonica. And the word Thessalonica, well, this is made up of two Greek words that mean Thessalian victory. Thessaloniki. A word Nike, Greek for victory, not to be confused with the woke shoe company. We're talking about Nike or victory. And specifically, the victory that, that uh, is found uh, in this name Thessalonike, well, it's, it's referring to the victory of a mythological battle that took place in the plains of Thessaly as the mythological Olympians defeated the Titans as they battled for control over the entire universe. And so it's possible that Thessalonike was named after the mythological victory of the Thessalians uh, that, that they enjoyed after the Titans defeated, or the, uh, the Olympians defeated the Titans, if you can follow all of that. With this definition in mind, we could render verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians in this way. To the church of Thessalian victory, which is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of Thessalian victory, which is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the true victory for those living in the plains of Thessaly, it wasn't secured by mythological Olympians, I can assure you of that. The true victory for the Thessalians is found where? That's what Paul says. In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The true victory for the people living in the plains of Thessaly was achieved on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, the true victory of the Thessalonians was found in God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. And what this means then is that the true victory of Jesus is enjoyed by born-again believers who are actually plugged into the church of Thessalian victory, if you will. I like the way that the Lord Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 16. Again, it's there where he declares, I will build my church. Whose church is it? It's, It's the Lord Jesus' church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. If this church is being built by the Lord Jesus Christ, can the, Olympi- can the Olympians defeat this church? Nope. Can the Titans defeat this church? Nope. Can Satan defeat this church? Absolutely not. The victory belongs to us if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The born-again believer who wants to walk in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be plugged into a local church where Jesus Christ is being glorified according to his word. And the reason why is because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church that is led by the Lord Jesus Christ. That being the case, the Christian who is plugged into their fellowship of faith, well, that's the believer who can rejoice in knowing that our faith in Jesus provides us with everlasting victory over the enemy. Now, this brings us to our second point because, listen, the church challenge not only helps believers to become victorious Christians by faith in Jesus Christ, but the church challenge also helps believers to become gracious Christians who are serving our Savior. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's continue to consider the greeting that Paul presents here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 1. Here again, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. Now I want to stop right there because I want to consider the concept uh, uh, that's conveyed in this word grace. I'll remind you, it was in our last study when we consider the way that Christians have been called to grow in grace. And what this means is that believers should become more and more gracious the longer we walk with the Lord. The longer we walk with our gracious God by faith in Jesus Christ, the more gracious we ought to become with one another. And one reason why is because we experience more of God's grace and we see God's grace uh, exemplified in the lives of others and, and our lives should be changed and, and, and we should be motivated to be more gracious to the people around us. Just to be clear, I'll remind you that uh, the word grace It's translated from a Greek word which refers to the unearned and unmerited favor by which God forgives those who trust in Jesus. And while it's true that Christians have received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ, it's also true that now we're being called to walk in the same grace with one another here within our fellowship of faith. Now, in order to further explain my point, we should consider the instructions that Paul presents to the Christians at the church in Corinth. And so hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, as you make your way to the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I want to take a moment to point out that when Paul spoke of the grace of God, he was using the Greek word charis. This is the Greek word charis. And while the charis of God or the grace of God results in the forgiveness 
of those who trust in Jesus Christ, this is the same charis that provides us with charismatic gifts. The, 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 the word charismatic finds its root in the Greek word charis, which is grace. And so the charismatic gifts are given to us uh, at the moment of our conversion to Christ Jesus. This is part of the grace we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the Lord continues to pour out his grace upon the church and he does this through the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. And to make my case, it'll help you to know that the word uh, that's translated gifts, found in several places here in these verses, that word gifts is translated from the Greek word charisma, which is a derivative of the Greek word charis. So from charis, or grace, you get charisma, speaking of these spiritual gifts, and from that we uh, you know, invent our term charismatic. So you know, the church that believes that all of the gifts are functioning and in operation today, this is what we call a charismatic church. Some of those churches become what we call charismaniac churches. These are the churches that you find people rolling on the floor and barking like dogs and going through fire tunnels and laying on dead people's graves hoping for some sort of mantle to fall on top of them and these sorts of things. That's not happening here at this church. We are a charismatic church, though, though we don't subscribe to charismaniac practices. But we do believe that all the gifts are in operation for the church today. Now, those who we call cessationists, those are the people who say, well, the signifying gifts, they no longer are in operation because now we have the fullness of God's word. We don't need these signifying gifts. And to that, I would ask, why in the world then does Paul present us with instructions for the church age in how to function in these charismatic gifts if they're not necessary for today? So without getting too much deeper into that, listen, we are a continuous church. We do believe in the charismatic gifts in full operation today, though I don't believe the Holy Spirit would interrupt the Holy Spirit in order to engage in some sort of silly spiritual shenanigans. Why would the Holy Spirit interrupt a Holy Spirit Bible study with some tongues that have no interpretation? I mean, it just it makes no sense to me. And I've been to churches like that. I've actually spoke at various churches. Once I was speaking at an Assemblies of God church and spoke about how we need to line up our churches according to the instructions that we find in the New Testament epistles. And this applies to the spiritual gifts as well. And next thing you know, all the church started breaking out in tongues with no interpretation at all. I was, I was like, you know, we just, we just talked about this, right? Listen, the, the, the instructions of Paul are clear. 
that if there are going to be tongues in the church, there should be three to speak at the most, one to interpret. And if there is no interpretation, then the people speaking in tongues ought to sit down and be quiet. That's the way uh, it's explained. And so we certainly believe in the charismatic gifts here at Calvary South Austin, though we also believe in the order that comes along with that because there is, uh, you know, God is not the author of confusion, amen? Well, so we do believe that the grace of God or the charis of God results in not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the charismatic gifts that enable us to serve our Savior Jesus. And I like the way that Paul puts it here uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, And and actually, before I get into this again, I want to point out that I did teach an entire study on the charismatic gifts back in 2006. It's a series called Ignite. And and so if you're you're, you're unfamiliar with the, the charismatic gifts found in the scriptures and you're not sure which gifts you've received, I encourage you to go on our website and just do a a simple search for Ignite, uh, and you'll find uh, several studies uh, where I explain each of the charismatic gifts that we find in the Scriptures. This includes the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the apostolic gift, the gift of prophecy, the gift to teach, the gift of exhortation. Then there's the gift of helps, the gift to counsel. There's the gift of ministry, the gift of giving. There's the gift of leadership. Paul also mentions the gift of mercy, the gift of faith, the discerning of spirits, as well as the gift of healings and the gift of miracles, not to mention the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. These are the charismatic gifts that the Holy Spirit has distributed to those who trust in Jesus Christ. And in order to understand the purpose of these charismatic or grace-based gifts, let's take another look at the point that Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 4. Here Paul tells us that there are diversities of gifts, that's that word charisma, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Christian, listen, the Holy Spirit has provided us with a diversity of charismatic gifts, the gifts that I just previously listed. And we're called to use these gifts of grace to bless others within our fellowship of faith. Listen, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've been given charismatic gifts, but not for yourself. God didn't give you charismatic gifts for you, but he gave you charismatic gifts for others. It's kind of like dad, you know, when, when it gets closer to mom's birthday, you know, dad comes along and gives some money to the kids because they don't have any money you know, unless they're an internet influencer. But, uh, you know, if they're not, then they don't have any money. So dad gives the kids gifts. Dad gives the the, the kids money so that they can go buy mom gifts, right? You know, and and so that's the way that goes down. And in a similar fashion, God the Father has given us what we don't have, charisma, charismatic gifts, so that we can turn around and then use those to bless others. And so we should. We've been called to use our charismatic gifts for the profit of everyone else here within our church. And what this means is that we've been called to become gracious believers who are blessing others with the charismatic gifts that we've received. I like the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12. There he declares, for I say, through the grace given to me, Paul's saying, hey, I'm using my grace right now 
to explain these things to you. He's using the gift of teaching here to help us to understand that everyone uh, should not think of themselves more highly than he ought to, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Simply put, the Spirit of God has given to us different charismatic gifts so that we can all accomplish the diversity of ministries that ought to be accomplished within the local church. And listen, as we step up to serve one another according to the charismatic gifts that we've received, we end up becoming gracious Christians who are fulfilling our function according to the gracious gifts of God. And if this is true of you, let me just take a moment to extend a word of gratitude. I want to say thank you for helping Calvary South Austin to be such a gracious place to worship the Lord. I am filled with gratitude as I look and see uh, the way that different Christians are using their spiritual gifts to bless others here within our church. It really blesses me. You know, I want to do my best to use my gifting and my calling to bless you. And I love seeing you when you're blessing others with your charismatic gifts. At the same time, though, I also want to extend a challenge to those who are failing to fulfill their function here at our Fellowship of Faith. I like the way that Paul put it in Galatians chapter 5. It's verse 13 where he declares, You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Yeah, you, you've been called to freedom. In Christ we are free. In Christ, we are set free from all bondage. But then Paul says this, do not use your liberty or do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Rather than spending your freedom on yourself, Paul says, use your freedom to become the slave of others. Rather than taking your liberty and saying, thank you, Lord, thank you for, for, for my you know, fire insurance, I'm going to go back to doing whatever I want to do now. Paul says, don't do that. Use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity to serve others. Paul was clearly giving a church challenge to every Christian that we would use our freedom as an opportunity to serve others with the charismatic gifts that we've received from the Lord. If Paul were writing a letter to Calvary South Austin today, I have no doubt that he would issue the same challenge to us that he gave to the church in Galatia. That every Christian here might use their charismatic gifts to serve one another according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it's for this reason that I present you with the same church challenge. In order to further grasp this church challenge, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the church in Ephesus. And so continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to point out that we don't deserve the charismatic gifts that we've received from the Holy Spirit. These are gifts that are gracious gifts. They're undeserved. They're unmerited and the Holy Spirit has graciously given us these gifts that are, that are more valuable than we could ever imagine. 
At the same time, the Holy Spirit also has a plan to continue pouring out his grace here at Calvary South Austin. And he does this through the obedience of the believers who are using their charismatic gifts so that we can serve one another in the way that we should as we all set out to accomplish uh, the roles and responsibilities that the Lord has for us. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 11. Here Paul declares, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom, notice, the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Listen, rather than being spiritual spiritual children who are constantly tossed to and fro by the false doctrines introduced by wolves in sheep's clothing. Listen, Christians ought to instead plug in to a biblically sound church which is built upon the foundation that was established by the apostles and the prophets. And as the pastor teacher uses charismatic gifts to raise up leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the church ends up being built up and edified as every Christian ends up doing their part so that we graciously serve one another with our spiritual gifts for the benefit of all the believers here at our Fellowship of Faith. And, and as we consider the very simple instructions here, it blows my mind as I consider the way that Christians continue to be tossed to and fro and carried about by all winds of doctrine. I've seen it, you know, I, I came to Christ back in 1995. And since then, I've watched, I've watched Christians, they, get, they come into the church, you know, they, 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 they were in the world, and they come into the church, and they're all beat up, and they're just so excited to be plugged in, and they plug in for a season, and then next thing you know, they're right back out the door, back into the world. And then they get blown back into the church, and they go back out into the world, and they're blown back into the church, and, back, and they never grow. They never advance in their walk. They never really get grounded in the church. They never sink their roots down into the foundation established by the apostles and the prophets. Now it's just this constant, you know, ebbing and flowing and getting tossed to and fro and, you know, disappearing for a season and back in and stop. Just plug in. Stop making excuses. Take the church challenge, plug in, and start using your charismatic gifts to serve others. It really is that simple. Well, with all that, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I using the charismatic gifts to graciously bless other believers here at my fellowship of faith? Or am I failing to be gracious to the people that the Lord is calling me to bless? Christian, listen, if you're failing to use your charismatic gifts to edify others within your church, then you're also failing to become a gracious Christian who's doing their part here within our fellowship of faith. 
And if this sounds like you, then I challenge you to step up and take this church challenge. You see, the church challenge helps believers to become victorious Christians who are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And the church challenge also helps believers to become gracious Christians who are serving others with our charismatic gifts. Thirdly and finally, the church challenge helps us to become harmonious Christians. And to explain my point, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we find Paul presenting us uh, with this church challenge in his greeting. Look with me again there, beginning at verse 1. Here again, Paul writes, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in the second half of verse 2, we find Paul, he's invoking the peace of God upon the church there in Thessalonica. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word peace, it's translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to those who were enjoying a state of national tranquility, which means that the nation is free from war. And and no doubt, uh, I'm sure every nation enjoys uh, a state of national tranquility. The same Greek word was also used of those who enjoy the mental tranquility that comes from the assurance of salvation, which is received by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's possible that Paul's simply reminding the Christians there in Thessalonica about the peace that we have by faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this is precisely the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 5. It's there where he declares, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. In other words, those who trust in Jesus Christ have been judicially justified, which is sort of like saying it's just as if I'd never sinned. According to Paul, those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ are now at peace with God the Father. And the reason why? It's because Jesus has already received the punishment that we deserve for the sins that we've committed. Listen, if Jesus already received the punishment that we deserve for all of our sins, then it would be unjust for God the Father to turn around and punish us for our sins, having already punished Jesus for our sins. And so listen, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should have the assurance of knowing that your sins have already been punished. Jesus received our punishment there on the cross, praise the Lord. And so we have peace with God our Father by faith in Jesus Christ. Now as we consider how Christians have peace with God, well we must not fail to notice that Paul here isn't talking about having peace with God, but rather he was invoking peace from God. As a matter of fact, notice again in, in verse uh, uh, chapter, or actually 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, here again Paul declares grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about having peace with God. He, he's praying for peace from God. And as we take a closer look at this greeting, you know, we can see here that Paul wasn't you know, encouraging his audience to seek the peace that comes from the assurance of salvation. I'll remind you, Paul is writing to born-again believers who were already enjoying peace with God. They already had peace with God. I think the problem is that they weren't having much peace with one another. I think there were probably, if I know church life, the chances are uh, there was some conflicts happening there in the congregation. And so he's praying for peace 
from God. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verse 2. They put it like this. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. In other words, Paul here was asking the Lord to pour out his peace upon this congregation of Christians. And in this sense, the word peace speaks of the harmony that we experience whenever we exchange our relational conflicts with the concord that Christ Jesus wants us to experience with other Christians. Yeah, Christ Jesus wants us to have peace and harmony with one another here at our church. With that being the case, it's sad to say that there are times when we aren't really enjoying peaceful relationships with other Christians here at church. And it's for this reason that I want to present you with yet another aspect of this church challenge. To put it plainly, every Christian should make it their aim to make sure that our church is a place of relational harmony. Relational harmony. Now, with this as the goal, we should consider something that Paul wrote in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that every relational connection includes the potential for conflict. You might not know that by now. I'm guessing you do. Every relational connection includes the potential for conflict. And and the longer the relational uh, connection exists, the more potential for conflict. And listen, when it comes to relational conflict, uh, we can either be those Christians who are throwing fuel on the relational fire, uh, or we can be the Christians who are trying to extinguish the fire. We can either be those Christians who are, you know, uh, you know, throwing that fuel on the flyer uh, on on the fire, or we can become those believers who prefer to be pacemakers. And uh, and and according to Paul here, we've been called to be peacemakers, not flamethrowers. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter twelve. Look with me there at verse sixteen. Here Paul declares, "Be of the same mind toward one another." Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's challenging the Christians there at the church in Rome to become those believers who were humble enough to get along with those, even those they didn't care much for. Now, I realize that we all have personal preferences pertaining to the personality traits that we find the most relatable. And you might meet someone and become fast friends just because they have those personality traits that you enjoy. Or you might meet someone and think, man, this person's a jerk. This person, I could never hang out with. I would never go to dinner with this person unless they were buying. But... uh, But Paul challenged every Christian to put aside those personal preferences for a moment and humble ourselves. And and just to do everything we can to live at peace with everyone else here within our church. And and I believe that we would all do well uh, to seek the Lord so that he might pour out his perfect peace upon this place. Because listen, you know, this isn't a peace that we're naturally going to establish. You know, relational conflict is just a part of, of who most people are. You know, there are some docile people who are, you know, um, willing to get along with everyone. We call them beta males. But, you know, there are those people who just, 
<laughs> there are people that are just easy to get along with, right? And, and, and there are some people that are just difficult to get along with. But regardless, we've been called to live at peace, to do everything that we can to be at peace with everybody else. At the same time, listen, I also realize that it's not always possible to live peaceably with every person. It's not always possible. Let me give you a few examples. I personally find it difficult to live peaceably with the medical professionals and the politicians who insist that pregnant women have the right to terminate the life of their unborn baby. That is not a person I can get along with. That is not the kind of person that I can have peaceful relations with because I'm always going to want to correct them about their their murderous belief. I can't live peaceably alongside of those who are attempting to rewrite our Constitution or erase our Bill of Rights. I will be forever at conflict with that person. I can't live peaceably with those who are trying to indoctrinate our kids into the LGBTQIA plus community and and, and choose to use our school systems as, as a place for brainwashing our kids. I can't live peaceably with those who are trying to mutilate children with so-called sex reassignment surgeries, knowing that they cannot change the chromosomes of that individual. I can't be at peace with that person. I can't live peaceably with false teachers who are attempting to lead people astray with doctrines of demons. I will always have conflict in challenging these people. And when it comes to causes like these, Christians should passionately protest those who are actively involved in these satanic schemes. We shouldn't go along to get along with these satanic ploys and the people who engage in them. We ought to be taking a stand. We ought to be voicing a a biblical point of view as we, uh, you know, know, engage in uh, the debate with these people. There are many evil causes that Christians ought to take a stand against. And it's sad to say that the Protestant church doesn't seem to be interested in protesting anymore. And we should. Sadly, it seems like the majority of believers have exerted most of their energy arguing with someone who hurt their feelings at church. And they have no more of that energy for real issues. Listen, I get it. I'm not saying go ahead and hurt people's feelings and whatnot. Let's try to be gracious with one another. But listen, if someone steps on your toes, I mean, just forgive and forget, move on. And yet some Christians seem to be in some eternal grudge mode that just won't allow them to forgive and forget to the point where it's finally just kind of like, you know, I got I to go to another church because some other church is perfect out there unlike this one. Well, good luck. Good luck with that. They say that if you find a perfect church, don't go because... It was perfect before you got there. Listen, there will be relational conflicts that occur at every church. Every church you go to, there's going to be friendship frictions and divisive disputes and personality problems. Why? Well, because people are there. 
We haven't been called to hold grudges and, and move on down the road to the next church. We've been called to learn how to live peaceably with one another uh, here within our Christian community. And, and, in, and in, this, in this way, Christians uh, ought to expend their energy on real issues that are happening in this world rather than on just the, the little conflicts that rise up here within our community. Satan is moving forward his program in this world in real ways. And, and one way that he does it is by infiltrating the church, causing division so that he can break up a, a good Bible-believing church so that all Christians you know, end up going to, to, to some you know, liberal church where theology is no longer solid. Be careful with all of this unforgiveness. Be careful with grudge holding and, and be careful with you know, holding on to these, these you know, insignificant conflicts. I know it's everything in your life, but when you really boil it down, is it that big of a deal? With all of this, I want to encourage you to consider the church challenge that Paul presented to the Christians in Colossae. You see it's in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul declares this. He says, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping the Christians there in Colossae to learn how to have harmonious relationships with those in our church that we'd rather spend our time complaining about. And I get it. I'm sure we all have someone in this church that we'd rather spend our time complaining about. But Paul says, don't do that. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. He doesn't say, you know, conjure up some sort of pseudo peace. He says, no, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Call out to God who alone can fill our hearts with his perfect peace. And listen, as his peace rules in our hearts, we're able to have peace with one another. Listen, if you don't have the peace of God in your heart, you won't be able to have peaceful relationships with anybody else. And if you, if you constantly find yourself in conflict with others, then, it, then the chances are it's because you don't have the peace of God ruling in your own heart. If your heart is filled with unforgiveness for those who have offended you here at church, then you won't be able to live peaceably with those who you continue to complain about, all the while failing to realize that all of your complaints are just as sinful as whatever they did to you. So cry out to the Lord and ask him to fill you with the peace that surpasses all understanding. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts so that he can then help you to live peaceably with others. With all this in mind, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I humbly bearing with the believers who have hurt my feelings? Because that's what he says. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Are you bearing with those who have hurt your feelings? 
Here's how I do. I just give them a big bear hug. I squeeze them as tightly as I can. This is how we should bear with one another by forgiving them. Are we forgiving others with long-suffering love or do we disrupt the harmony of our church with divisive disputes? Christian, listen, we've been called to serve our Savior side by side in humble harmony. With this as the goal, I challenge you to spend some time prayerfully asking the Lord to fill your hearts with his peace so that we can then live peaceably with everyone here at church. Now, uh, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to point out that when it comes to the church challenge, there are 52 Sundays in a year. Think about that for a moment. When it comes to the church challenge, there are 52 Sundays in a year. And what this means is that there are 52 opportunities every year to show up to church on Sunday and serve our Savior. Now, how many of those Sundays are you willing to give up for something that is probably less important? How many of the 52 Sundays are you willing to say, yeah, I'm not going to do the church challenge today. I got something better. Now listen, it's not my desire to turn church attendance into some sort of legalistic obligation. If you don't have a passion to show up and serve your Savior, that's, that's between you and the Lord. But I'm just pointing out that we only have so many opportunities every year to serve our Savior on Sunday. And there should be no doubt, based on the verses that we've looked at today, the Lord is calling us to become active participants within our Christian congregation. Therefore, I present you, in closing, with the church challenge, by challenging every believer to make it their aim to show up, plug in, and take every advantage, every opportunity to serve our Savior here at our church. Will you accept the church challenge? by making it your aim to plug in and become an active participant here at your church? If so, there's good news because, listen, a lot of those internet challenges that I mentioned in the intro, uh, they put people in the hospital, even killed a few people along the way. So here's the good news. The church challenge, it actually results in benefits for every believer. The church challenge helps believers to become victorious Christians. And as victorious Christians, we become more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. The church challenge also helps believers to become gracious Christians who graciously show up on the regular so that we can serve others with the charismatic gifts that we've received. And finally, the church challenge helps us to become harmonious Christians who are learning to live peaceably with those who have even hurt our feelings. And, and with this as the goal, I encourage you in closing, accept the church challenge so that we can take advantage of every opportunity to become active participants of our Christian congregation. Let's pray.